is uh, from Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1. I will read verses 18 through 25. Hear the word of God. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, we pray that you would be present uh, with us this morning uh, in the preaching of your word. We thank you for your invitation to gather here as your people to gather around your word and to gather to sing your praises and to offer you prayers uh, this morning. I pray that uh, this morning as we uh, listen to what your word has to say to us, I pray that we would be encouraged in our faith and that we would be made stronger for the journey. And I pray that we would look more and more like Christ and that we would uh, bring you greater honor and glory. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Christmas is all about giving and receiving gifts, which is why the month of December is the biggest retail month of the year. 20% of our annual retail spending is done at Christmas time. $1.1 trillion will be spent uh, this year to celebrate Christmas. Apparently the tradition of gift giving at Christmas comes from the Magi who brought gifts to Jesus. Of course, the Magi might have been wise guys, but they were not very timely guys. They didn't actually show up at Jesus' house until two years after he had been born, which is about how late I'm going to be with my gifts this year if I don't get moving. The smartest Christmas shoppers are the ones who go to the mall in January, because that's when the bargains are to be found. I think it would be really interesting if one year all the Christians were to get together and were to secretly conspire to delay Christmas for just two weeks. We'd start our shopping on December 26. And imagine the bargains. Imagine the savings. In our congregation alone, the savings could cover the cost of a new roof on the boyer. And next year... We could do it again and replace our 65-year-old heating system that Jay Seragian keeps patched together with chewing gum and bailing twine. So, I mean, seriously, we do need to replace the roof and we do need to replace our heating system. Nothing lasts forever and they have exceeded 
their useful lives and we have come to the point of needing to really fix them rather than just to patch them up in the coming year. But Christmas is a season of giving and it is a season of receiving, which I think is wonderful. God is always giving us good stuff. One of my favorite passages of Scripture actually comes from the saddest book of the Bible. You all know this passage. We often sing it in a very beloved hymn. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is His faithfulness. Now there are two things about that verse. First, God never changes. But second, God's blessings are changing All of the time. God's blessings are fresh and they're new. God never changes, that's for sure. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. The word in Hebrew that's translated as steadfast love is an important word in the Old Testament. The word is hesed. In the King James Version, some of you old timers will remember that it's translated as loving kindness. And in that one word, hesed, there are two kind of divergent ideas. One is that God is steady, that He's unchanging, that He's dependable, that He's reliable, that He's fixed in His character. And the other is is that God is also tender and caring and generous. So God is steady, and God is steady in His love toward us. But His love toward us is always shown in new ways, in fresh ways. His mercies are new every morning. The blessings that you had yesterday, they're not the end of the story. They're going to be new blessings today. The blessings that you had last year, they're not the end of the story. You're going to have new blessings in the coming year. The blessings that you had this past decade, they're not the end of the story. You're going to have new blessings in the coming decade. God is unchanging, but God is also ever fresh and ever green. And His unchanging, ever fresh character is the character of a giving, generous, loving, caring, doting Father. Gift giving and generosity are just part of who God is. It's just who God is and He can't change. And so it's nice that we celebrate Christmas by giving gifts. In some small way, we behave like God when we give gifts to each other. And I hope you give many precious gifts this Christmas season. I hope you have people in your life that you love so deeply that your love for them just draws forth a big fat generosity and a desire to give gifts. The Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. And I hope you're giving cheerfully this Christmas to each other because I want God to love you for it. And of course, no one wants a gift if it's been given begrudgingly. And nobody wants a gift with strings attached. Begrudging gifts and gifts given with strings attached aren't even really gifts. They're burdens. They are baited traps. They're not gifts. But how sweet is even the smallest gift when it's given cheerfully? On Wednesday evening, my daughter Mia, she's 10 years old. She's actually in New York today celebrating Hanukkah with the other side of the family. Mia set the table for us at dinner time. And inside the napkin at my wife's place and at my place, she had tucked two little notes 
And mine said, I love you, Dada. And it had a heart and two exclamation points, and it was written in cursive. Just a little gift. But how sweet it is to receive that kind of gift. I hope you all have lots of gifts that you are receiving at this time in your life. May we all be cheerful givers, not just at Christmas, but throughout the year. More than a 100 people came out last Sunday evening to watch our children perform the Christmas play. Naoma Trask and her minions did a wonderful job of pulling this show uh, together. I think it was called The Best Christmas Ever. What, is that what it's called? The Best Best Christmas Gift Ever. In case you don't know, The Best Christmas Gift is... Jesus, okay, so you, you know how the, how the play comes out. So the Bible says God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. I don't know if you ever noticed that. God so loved the world. It, didn't, it, it doesn't say God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son or that He commissioned His only begotten Son or that He ordained His only begotten Son, but that He gave. His only begotten Son. God is a loving God and His lovingness gives us all kinds of gifts every day. He's given us gifts, little ones and big ones, lots and lots of gifts every day of our lives we're receiving. But the greatest gift of all is Jesus Himself. I know that sounds trite. I know that sounds like Sunday school talk. I know that sounds like things that we tell little kids, but it's true. And I want you to think this morning with me about What is it about Jesus that makes him such a great gift? Alright, there are all kinds of gifts that we want from God. What is it about Jesus that makes him the greatest kind of gift? Now, let's recognize right up front that there are lots of different things that we need from God and that we want from God. Our call to worship this morning was taken from a psalm. And in that psalm, there is a a kind of prayer to God. Uh, that God would save the nation. There's some, we don't know exactly what's going on in the circumstances of that psalm, but the nation of Israel is besieged by some kind of enormous problem. Some kind of terrible enemy. Maybe there's a, uh, maybe there's a famine. Maybe there's an army invading. We don't exactly know. And the psalmist cries out, restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Restore our fortunes. Save us, God. These are big prayers. These are national prayers in the case of this psalm. They're asking for big things. You might imagine the people of Poland or the people of Czechoslovakia or the people of France praying such a prayer when Nazi armies invaded and occupied their country. Save us, God. Restore our fortunes. Now, we don't know the particular circumstances of Psalm 80, but let's suppose that God did answer that prayer that the psalm contains. Let's suppose that God did restore the nation, that God saved those people on that occasion. Even if God did those wonderful things, maybe he turned away a foreign army, maybe he restored the crops after a famine, even if God gave that gift... Jesus is still a greater gift. But why? Well, our reading from Matthew chapter 1 gives us the answer. The angel of the Lord 
speaks to Joseph and says to him, Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Wait, what? Leave that up there. He will do what? I know that the name Jesus means God saves, but what did the angel say that Jesus was going to save us from? I was pretty sure that the angel was going to say, for he will save his people from their poverty. I was pretty sure that the angel was going to say, for he will save his people from their sickness. I was pretty sure that he was going to say that he will save his people from their enemies. I was pretty sure that the angel was going to say, for he will save his people from Donald Trump, from Nancy Pelosi, from climate change deniers, from fake news purveyors, from deplorable racists, from secular atheists. That's what I thought the angel was going to say. That Jesus, this great gift of God, is going to save God's people from bad stuff and bad people that make our lives so miserable. I know that's what I've been praying for. Oh, how long, oh Lord, must I endure these people who are so stupid all around me? Turn your ear toward me, merciful Father, and save me from them. The funny thing about human prayers is that they go through a filter before they get to God. Did you know that? Do you know that your prayers go through a Holy Ghost filter before they reach the Father's ear? Because the truth is that we don't really know what it is that we need. But God does. And God loves us. And so He doesn't always give us what we ask for, but He does always give us what we need. And what is it that we need? We need to be saved from our sins. I don't need to be saved from the sins of Donald Trump. I don't need to be saved from the sins of Nancy Pelosi. What I need above all else, and you might as well take everything I have and throw it into the dumpster, if I don't have this one thing, what I need above all else is to be saved from my sins. I need to be saved from the sins of Dan Morrison. She will bear a son... And you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save Dan from Dan's sins. Not from the sins of the Roman Empire. Not from the sins of the religious hypocrites. He will save his people from their own sins. Thanks be to God. Why do I need to be saved from my sins? Because my sins, and not the sins of my enemies... My sins are what will take me to hell. In the New Testament, there are 1,850 verses that record the words of Jesus. And of those verses, 13% deal with eternal judgment and hell. Jesus talked more about hell than anyone else in Scripture. Jesus talked more about hell than he did heaven. We cannot believe in Jesus if we do not believe in hell. So here's what Jesus taught about hell. First, hell is an actual place. It's a real location. In the same way that heaven is an actual place. 
Jesus describes both heaven and hell using topological language, language about place. You remember the passage where Jesus is comforting his disciples and he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place, a topon, for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that you may be where I am also. The heavenly city, New Jerusalem, the final destination of the saints is a place. It's a real location. And Jesus talks about hell in precisely the same way. In this parable about the sheep and the goats, Jesus uses this same kind of topological language. He says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. We go to our final destination, to those real places, and we're not in those places until we have gone there. According to Jesus, hell is an actual place, and it is as real as heaven. Second, hell is a place of suffering. Jesus tells a story about a rich man who shows no mercy to a beggar who lives on his own doorstep. And the rich man dies, and he goes to hell, and he cries out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip his finger in some water to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in flames. Hell is a place of anguish and regret. Jesus describes hell as an outer darkness. And he tells us, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Mark's gospel, Jesus quotes the prophet Isaiah and describes hell as a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. According to Jesus, hell is a place of suffering. And third, Jesus taught that the suffering in hell is forever. There is a false teaching that is enjoying some popularity these days. It's called annihilationism. Annihilationism says that the damned are thrown into hell and they're simply annihilated. They're like garbage thrown into an incinerator that just burns up. But Jesus never talks about hell that way. When he tells the story about the rich man, he pictures him there in hell, fully conscious, suffering, begging for mercy. And in the revelation of John, we read about two wicked humans called the false prophet and the beast, and we read these things. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. In the next chapter, John then talks about the devil being thrown into that same fire, an event that happens a thousand years later, after the false prophet, after the beast had been thrown into the fire. And here's what we read then. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night, forever and ever. The beast and the false prophet, now these are humans. And they've been in that lake of fire for a thousand years and they're still there. And the devil is thrown in and he'll be tormented forever. The picture scripture gives us of hell is that it just goes on forever. In the same way the pleasures of heaven go on forever. The torments of hell go on forever too. We see the exact parallel between these two eternal destinations In a passage we already quoted from Matthew chapter 25, this is Jesus speaking. He says, these will go away into eternal punishment, 
but the righteous will go into eternal life. According to Jesus, the suffering of hell is forever. So Jesus teaches us three things about hell. One is that it's a real place. Two is that it's filled with suffering. And three, that the suffering never ends. And since it is my sin that takes me to hell, hearing that Jesus has come to save me from my sin, well, that becomes tremendously good news. Being saved from my sin is being saved from hell, which is huge. Now let's turn our attention to salvation and to what the scripture teaches about Jesus and salvation. I want to look at three snippets of some very early Christian sermons or speeches. Two of them are given by uh, the Apostle Peter and one's given by the Apostle Paul. And they all appear uh, in the book of Acts. So the first one appears in Acts chapter 4 and we read this. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man standing before you as well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You remember this story. Peter has healed a beggar, uh, a beggar who's been lame from birth there on the steps of the temple. And this healing causes this huge stir among the people because they know that this man has never walked in his whole life. And the leaders of the temple are annoyed by this popularity uh, that is surrounding the followers of Jesus. And they call Peter and John before the council to answer questions. And the answers that they give to the temple officials must have been mortifying to them. You crucified Jesus Peter said, but God raised him from the dead. Now, this is a very awkward thing to hear. Okay, it's only been, I don't know, a couple of weeks since Jesus has been executed. Divine endorsement of the man that you executed. And if that's not bad enough, Peter then says, there is salvation in no one else. For no other name has been given under heaven by which we must be saved. Salvation is from our sins, and salvation is from the eternal torments of hell. And there is no salvation from these things except in Jesus. There is no other name by which we can be saved. Why that is the case and why salvation is only in Jesus is developed more fully in the book of Romans. It has something to do with everyone being under the curse of sin. It has something to do with the inability of anyone to satisfy God's law through human effort. It has something to do with Jesus' death being a substitution for our death. That all gets explained in the first ten chapters of Romans. Peter doesn't work that theology out here in this little speech But he does say loud and clear that Jesus is the Savior. 
that Jesus isn't just a moral teacher come to earth to show us how to live, but rather that Jesus is something unique, that he is the Savior, and that if we're going to be saved from the torments of hell, it will be through Jesus. Now we have another little sermon by Peter in Acts chapter 5. We read these words. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at the right hand as prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, again, in this situation, Peter uh, and, and his fellow apostles have been hauled in front of the religious authorities uh, because they've instructed Peter to not preach anymore in the name of Jesus. But, of course, they can't stop. And the reason that they can't stop preaching in the name of Jesus is because that in the name of Jesus there is the most important thing possible, forgiveness of sins. This is the biggest possible news because our sins place us in danger of an eternity in hell. But through Jesus, this escape has been made possible. Rescue has been made possible. Salvation has been made possible. The middle sentence of what we read is important. We don't quote it enough. God exalted Jesus at his right hand as prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. I'm glad that Jesus is the prince, the prince of peace. But I'm even more thrilled that he is a savior because what I need is to be saved from my sins. Now let's turn to Paul and see what he has to say. This this is a little longer passage, so hold on. This is in Acts chapter 13. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years he, for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. I love that phrase. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John the baptizer had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, that through this man, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him, everyone who believes is free. From everything which you could not be freed from by the law of Moses. Now notice how Paul places the salvation that we have in Jesus in the context of the larger history of salvation. God has been working a long time to save a people for himself. But with Jesus something fresh happens. Listen to the key passage. 
through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him everyone who believes is free from everything which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. From which you cannot be freed by the law of Moses. Now there's a whole lot of theology behind that statement. We're not going to go into all of it. But let me make two simple points. First, in Jesus there is forgiveness of sins. Our problem is sin. Sin is our ticket to hell. But in Jesus there's forgiveness of this sin. In Jesus there's salvation from hell. Make sure you don't make the mistake of thinking that the forgiveness in Jesus is simply a matter of Jesus saying, well, oh, don't worry about it. You know, that law, that wasn't so important anyway. We were only kidding. We didn't really mean all those things that we told the prophets. That's not what forgiveness of sins means. It's not what the scriptures teach. What the scriptures teach is that by faith in Jesus Christ, his perfect righteousness becomes ours. By faith in Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven because they've been paid for on the cross of Christ. They're only forgiven because Jesus died. And when we place our faith in Christ, our sins are put to death on that cross. And we're free. That takes us to the second point. We are set free by belief in Jesus. We are set free. We're set free from stuff that the law could never set us free. Free from, free from guilt, free from shame, free from judgment, free from regret, free from condemnation. There is no condemnation for Christians. By believing in Christ, we are set free. And the law of God, though it is precious to us, though it is a guide for our lives, though it reveals to us the mind of God, though it structures a healthy, sane life, the law of God cannot set us free. But Jesus can. The good news of Jesus was announced to Joseph back when Jesus was just a tiny fetus in his mother's womb. And the angel said to Joseph something that Joseph could not have possibly understood at the time. That which is conceived in Mary is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Thanks be to God. What a gift. It's the gift that I need above all other gifts. Now, I love gifts. I I love getting Christmas presents. I love my birthday. People send me gifts. But the gift that I need above all else is to be saved from my sin because my sin is a one-way ticket to hell. God gave Jesus to the world as a gift So that by faith in Him, we can trade that one-way ticket to hell for a one-way ticket to the heavenly New Jerusalem. I've made that exchange. That happened earlier in my life. I hope you have too traded the one ticket in for the other. God is a gift-giving Father. Every day He's giving us new blessings. But His greatest gift is His Son. Because by faith in Jesus Christ, our sins are wiped out and we are bound for glory. If you have never made a conscious decision...
to receive Jesus as your Savior, then I invite you to do that today. You'll have the best Christmas ever if you do. Let us pray. Father God, we love you and we adore you. And we love you only because you loved us first. And you loved us best in sending your own Son to die and to bear uh, the price of our guilt on the cross. We pray this morning for the added gift of the faith to receive Christ as our Savior. Lord, give us the faith to understand and to believe and to cling to that truth that has been taught by the church since the very first weeks the church existed. Lord Jesus, we thank you that uh, you have opened up a way through your own body for us to be restored to fellowship with the Father. And we look forward to that day when we will see you again face to face. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.